Well, I guess we'll go ahead and get started. You get a gold star if you made it all the way to the end. Uh, I usually like to quote to my classes, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. So uh, you all did a good job of making it. So thank you for that. And uh, I've enjoyed uh, the time we've been together this semester and the good discussions that we've had over Proverbs. And so I hope it's been beneficial to you also in some way as we've looked at Scripture. And hopefully uh, it's maybe brought some fresh or uh, new things from the book of Proverbs to you as we've gone through it. All right, well, let me uh, open in prayer, and then we'll uh, get going, and uh, we'll I'll let you know where we are and what we'll try to cover tonight, okay? So let's go ahead and open uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for your grace and kindness in getting us here safely this evening, and we just ask now that you would help us as we uh, look into the word, I pray that you give us wisdom and insight. I pray that we would have uh, the wisdom that only you can provide as we understand and correlate the truth from your word. So I pray for strength and grace. I pray for insight. And I pray that you'd help each of us to be faithful as we seek to live out this wisdom in a way that would uh, make an impact on those around us. And we pray that you'd be glorified even in our time together this evening, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last uh, week we concluded with uh, looking at Proverbs 7, and so we were looking at this example story of the uh, Israelite woman who catches a young man who's walking through the streets of the city somewhat unawares and entices him to accompany her back to her home, of course, and unbeknownst to him, he's actually... uh, going headlong to his own death. And so we uh, discussed that, and there are actually some some extra pages in the notes, and I'm, I'll let you uh, work through that material. I don't want to belabor Chapter 7 too much. I feel like we probably got a good uh, grasp of it. So what I'd like to do is start tonight on page 119, if you have your notes, 119. And we're going to look at Proverbs 8, 9, and uh, as much of 10 as we can get to tonight in an hour that we have. Uh, so we want to look at 8 and 9. We've spent uh, several weeks, of course, looking at the uh, introductory matters to Proverbs and then working through the prologue. And then tonight we have the conclusion of the prologue, which is Proverbs 1 and 9. So we have uh, Lady Wisdom's speech in chapter 8. And then we have this uh, contrasting uh, stories of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly in chapter 9. And that's how the prologue ends. Okay, so we want to just take some time to begin by looking at chapter 8. And uh, this really is is a single unit. This is the longest speech by a character in the book of Proverbs. It is also a uh, first-person narration. And uh, if you know a lot about Hebrew narrative, uh, I think I've mentioned this before as well, that one of the principal ways that Hebrew narrative develops characters in the Old Testament is by their speech, what they say. It's usually not through physical uh, descriptions, for instance. We don't know really what the Apostle Paul looked like, right? We never get a physical description of him. We don't know what Abraham looked like and so on. But we have speeches that sort of uh, give us an insight into their character. And so that's the case here. Lady Wisdom is developed as a character, and she has a lengthy speech here. So I want to read through this and then uh, make some observations. And uh, as I read through, just be thinking... Uh, why is this here? What is this chapter accomplishing in the flow of the prologue? And what is Lady Wisdom trying to communicate in this lengthy speech that she has? All right, so beginning in verse 1. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. 
I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles all who rule on earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. When he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. Rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. All right, so a lengthy passage here. It begins with uh, a miniature narrative in those first three verses talking about where she is and what she's doing, and then a lengthy speech where she describes herself and uh, touches on several key themes as she works through the passage here. So, any observations from you as to uh, what stood out to you as we worked through this passage and uh, maybe some observations about Lady Wisdom and her character and what she is accomplishing and doing within this passage? Anyone? Any ideas or thoughts? I thought it was interesting that it said at the very beginning that uh, she was came forth before all the creation. Yeah. It is interesting. So uh, this is really the most extended account of what we would call creation theology in the book of Proverbs. Uh, and in certain parts here, she sounds much like uh, the Lord in the speeches at the end of Job, right, where he's talking about creation and asking Job questions. Um, so... She says that she was here, she was there at the beginning before the world essentially was created. So that's a key concept that we'll talk a little bit more about, but it, it stresses certain things about uh, the, the primacy of her wisdom. In other words, if she was there at the beginning, she knows everything about it, right? Like uh, you're, as parents, you know your children the best of anybody because you've been there from the beginning and you've seen the whole thing, uh, and so you know every moment, and you have intimate knowledge, and that seems to be what uh, wisdom is claiming here. All right, other thoughts or observations? Yeah. Well, the the importance of wisdom is emphasized. It's more valuable than gold or silver or anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's valuable, and it offers value, right? It, she says that she will give... Uh, to those who find her, uh, she will reward them uh, with riches as well. Okay, good observations. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, I, I think in Psalm 57, I'm not sure, you know, it talks about, you know, the psalmist talking about God, you know, before the ages, before the, the mountains, you know. And yeah, Psalm 90. Mm-hmm. From everlasting to everlasting, our God. Right. And the thing is, is uh, it seemed like. Now, it, if if you had established this exactly, maybe I missed it. But but the uh, wisdom isn't this a personification of God's own wisdom? But yet, yeah. she said, "When I was formed long ago, at the very beginning, when the world came to be," and it just seems like uh, 
if she's the if she's the wisdom of God, uh, she would have she would have had a beginning before that. Or you know, do you speak? You know, do you give latitude with poetic language? I you know. Yeah. It just seems like that's kind of limiting. That if she is God's wisdom, uh, just a personification of God's wisdom, that's kind of limiting her age to the beginning of the world. Yeah. It, it's interesting in that sense, and it lends itself to some interpretive questions because, you know, does wisdom have a terminal beginning point if wisdom is God's wisdom? Wouldn't it be eternal? Uh, so that's been answered various ways. Uh, most would say uh, we can't press it too far because it's metaphorical language, it's figurative to the fact that uh, what it's stressing is the wisdom God had when he created because creation is usually pictured as the epitome of divine wisdom. He's the master builder who's like a craftsman created the world. And wisdom in the ancient world uh, really could almost be translated expertise. It was usually uh, some sort of technical uh, expertise or knowledge that helped you to build things or to govern well or all these sorts of things. So uh, God is supreme in his wisdom uh, because he created a very good universe, a, a cosmos that is orderly and that uh, makes sense, is well-defined, and so wisdom was instrumental in that. But let me also touch on one other thing that is sort of a, a touch point in various theological debates. Uh, if you're familiar with the history of the church a little bit and uh, historical theology, you may be familiar with the term Arianism. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but uh, this essentially says that uh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, uh, is in some variation inferior to God the Father, usually as a created being. And this uh, is alive and well in cults such as Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other uh, things. And it goes back to early centuries of the church. Uh, Arius was the one who propounded this. And Arius used Proverbs 8 as one of his key proof texts because he said that wisdom here is Jesus Christ. And so when it says uh, that God brought him forth, or verse 22 is sometimes... Uh, translated, the Lord created me as the first or acquired me as the first of his works. And so that was used to argue uh, that Jesus was a created being rather than eternal. Uh, and so that's sort of been uh, a flashpoint in historical theology in terms of uh, arguments against the deity of Christ. Uh, so it's, it, this is a passage that interestingly has been a focal point in doctrinal discussions over the centuries. Uh, in my own view, I'm not sure that we should, according to the original author's intent, take wisdom to be one for one equated with the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems better to take it as a personification of the Lord's wisdom. Now, we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom, uh, but I'm not sure that the original author intended us to to read it that way. Did you have a question or a thought? Yeah, I was wondering why they have a persona like a woman. Is that more of like a nurture type thing? Wisdom stuff that you slowly gain over time, like how like mother would raise a child? Yeah. I think one of, one of the features is wisdom itself in Hebrew is a feminine word because they have genders in their words. Secondly, it's a wisdom. It's a woman because it's to be attractive to the young man. Uh, so she is a, a feminine figure. Now, where people have gotten off the tracks is they'll compare her to goddesses in the ancient Near East because almost every culture uh, had gods and goddesses, whereas Israel was very unique because God was unequaled, unrivaled in all of creation, and so there was only one God. Uh, but wisdom isn't really portrayed as a goddess. She is by the side of the Lord, but she doesn't rival him in terms of sovereignty, supremacy, and all those things. So uh, it's primarily, I think, because it lends itself to a book, uh, an instruction manual for young men as something desirable for them. Uh, and so these are parts of the reasons, I think, that she is portrayed that way. How about the last verse where it says... But those who fail to find harm themselves and all hate me, love death, wouldn't that be Jesus? You don't find 
content? Yeah, I mean, that is true. Uh, whether or not... The, the question becomes, you know, how do we how do we read Scripture? It's, it's a question, really, of hermeneutics, if I can use that term. How do we interpret the Bible? Um, is, is every verse in the Old Testament about Christ... Okay, some it's a popular view today. Uh, there are you know publishers like Crossway, which is you know a good publisher, but they publish a lot of books that uh, advocate what's called a Christocentric hermeneutic, and what they mean by that is they see Christ everywhere in every verse. Uh, my own view is when Jesus says in Luke twenty four, you know he's talking on the road to Emmaus that the the law, the prophets, the Psalms they point to him. He's not necessarily saying that every single verse is pointing to him so much as the main trajectories or lines. So uh, so what I think we have to do is to be careful that when we interpret Scripture, we're, we're first interpreting it as the original audience and the original author would have understood it and intended it to be understood. And then from there, we can draw principles and applications. Uh, so it is true, of course, that if we reject Christ, we... we are condemned to death. Uh, but I think the original author and audience is looking this, at this more narrowly in terms of wisdom and the wisdom that leads to life and folly that leads to death. So that's probably the primary interpretive orb where we should stay. And then we can draw lines to Christ eventually because he does, and I said this at the beginning of the course, that ultimately Jesus is the perfect sage who embodies what Proverbs is talking about. But we can't immediately jump there without first understanding what the original author and audience would have understood about the book, and then we can see how it consummately is fulfilled in Christ. So, so uh, in verse 22, it says, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. And I was just thinking that um, if wisdom is expertise, then God, God created wisdom when he, when he created it. What, what would a wisdom have been before creation? So maybe that's why he's saying that's when wisdom began. Because if it's expertise, what would it have been before creation? Yeah. Yeah, this merges into philosophical debates about the nature of God and the Godhead. Uh, because we, we see God as a trinity, right? We know that, um, I don't know if you've ever heard, there's this old gospel song and uh we were we were down in uh, North Carolina at uh, what's the name of that place um, where they had the creation uh, natural bridge natural bridge uh, down in Virginia they have this creation movie that they portray on the side of this uh, natural bridge formation and it starts by this line that God was lonely right so he created man. Well, we know, of course, that that's not a biblical perspective at all because within the Trinitarian relationships, God, Son, Holy Spirit, God had no need to create man to fill some void in his life, some emotional vacuum there. Uh, but at the same time, uh, when he creates, he creates man immediately as a conversation partner. If you read carefully through Genesis 1, uh, it's not until God creates man that he actually speaks to him as a conversation partner. When he creates birds and fish, he blesses them, and he says, be fruitful, multiply. But it doesn't say that he says that to them as if he were talking to a cognizant being. So when God creates man, he's created uh, this dialogical relationship now between God and man. And so there is a sense, I think, that God's wisdom is best displayed in his creative power and organizing and forming the cosmos, and man is the pinnacle of that creation. And so man is the epitome of God's uh, wisdom and how he crafts and forms creation and mankind itself. So it, it is an application of wisdom that God has. We could say that God is omnisapient, meaning he's all-wise, but... Uh, you know, how is that wisdom actually tangibly displayed? Well, in creation, that's really the first, at least for us as finite beings, the first thing we can latch onto and say, yes, this is an exhibition of God's wisdom. Uh, 
so admittedly, it, it's tough, and, and this is something I've wrestled with too, because the language here uh, could be misconstrued as suggesting that wisdom's not eternal in God or something of that nature. But I, I think, again, because it's metaphorical, we have to give it some uh, some poetic license, I guess, to uh, express something in a way that, as finite humans, we can grasp and understand in terms of God's creative act. So, anyway, that's I'm sort of rambling at this point. But uh, other que- questions or thoughts on those lines? Would it possibly be uh, wisdom as it, just as it relates to man? Um, wisdom is obviously because God had wisdom for all of eternity. That, right. But it, you know, but is there a certain aspect of wisdom that is just dealing with man that is talked about here? Since since Proverbs is a book about wisdom mm-hmm. for men. Yeah. You know, I, I I guess we probably could say that. I feel like we're bumping up against the limits of our understanding and knowledge because. Uh, we say God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, but what does he know prior to the creation of the cosmos? He knows everything that will happen, but, but this is where this is the sphere or arena where his knowledge is displayed in terms of his wisdom in his reciprocal relationship with creation. So, um, so I, I think I could probably say, yeah, that, that's probably correct, so... You heard people try to explain it as like the first of his works is in maybe like the best or most important. Uh, yes, because that word can be taken different ways. Uh, that it's it's the primary, it's the first, it's it's the greatest. Um, so the the Hebrew can have all those connotations. So it's not necessarily simply the chronologically first. Uh, as much as say the the pinnacle or, or the great example of his wisdom. So, all right. Any other questions or observations about this chapter? Well, let's look at a couple things here, just to point out. If you look at verses one to three, uh, where is wisdom positioned, and why might that be significant? Going to the uh, beside the gate leading into the city at the entrance. Right. And wasn't that where all the decisions and judgments were, mm-hmm. were conducted? Right. So the the elders would sit at the city gates, and that's sort of the the people's court, if you will. That's where you would go for uh, legal transactions. That's where you would go for counsel. This is where the village elders would sit. So the prominent citizens of the city would sit there. So this is immediately suggesting that wisdom is a prominent citizen within her orbit. She's an exemplary dignitary who is conducting her uh, her appeal here from this vantage point. Notice verse 2, that first phrase there describing where she is. What is it? She's at the highest point. Now, why might that be significant, to be at the highest point? Okay. Yes, it, it gives you a, a good perspective on everything else, right? This is why I was reading this book today that made this comparison that uh, in all the ancient Near Eastern literature, when it talks about gods and goddesses looking at something, they always lift their eyes to look. In the Bible, God never does that. He always looks down, right? Because he's in heaven. And so the Tower of Babel is a good example. He, he looks down as if he can barely see what these scrawny little humans are making, this tower. Uh, so the idea there is God is supreme. So yes, in looking at the highest point, she has that vantage to look around. Any other thoughts about what this might mean? Well, if, if think about what I would call cosmic geography. In the ancient world, whenever a city was constructed... They would always select the highest point of the city. And does anybody know what they would build there? The temple, right? The temple to the deity, the patron deity of the city. So I want to suggest that there's temple imagery throughout this passage in chapter 8 and then particularly in chapter 9. Because in verse 9-1, when wisdom has built her house... uh, A house is how they would usually describe a temple. It was the house of the Lord 
or the house of Baal uh, for Baal worshippers and so on. So I want to suggest that she has a temple and that her temple is connected with the created order itself. This is uh, wisdom's temple ultimately because wisdom is a personification of God. All right, so she's there at the highest point and she's where the paths intersect. Uh, so again, this is not done in a corner, right? When, you remember in the Gospels where uh, the Pharisees are pressing in on Jesus and he makes the statement that, you know, everything I've done has been public in nature. In other words, it's not that he's been secretly trying to conspire and overthrow the Roman government. He's been out in the open publicly teaching. And, and so there's a sense in which wisdom is a public commodity. It's not a hidden thing. It's available to anyone, uh, those who pursue it. Okay, then looking at verses 4 and down... I just want to note a few things. If you look at verse 6 and over the next several verses, what would you say is the emphasis on wisdom's quality? What does she keep referring to uh, in terms of her own character? She doesn't describe herself as beautiful and physically attractive. She seems to keep focusing on a certain feature. Anybody? Okay, trustworthiness, right? Anyone else? Truthful. Truthful. Right. So it's on her speech. It's what she's saying. Uh, Notice verse 6. She has trustworthy things to say. She opens her lips to speak what is right. And so the emphasis here is on her words, what she says. Uh, And so uh, that's an important facet uh, because remember uh, Lady Folly, who is embodied in that Uh, outside woman whom the young man might be attracted to. She's also described in terms of her mouth, but when her mouth is described, remember that it's her lips drip oil and honey. She's attractive in a sensual, physical sense rather than uh, as as a proponent of wisdom. Lady wisdom, on the other hand, is not attractive because her physical features are alluring so much as what she has is valuable. And so you're to listen to her words because uh, her lips promulgate truth. And so that's what's attractive about her. All right. uh, There's a lot that we could say. She uh, talks about verse 13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Uh, This is kind of an enveloping pattern here where remember how Proverbs started in 1-7, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so twice here in chapter 8, she says to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then in chapter 9 and verse 10, she'll repeat that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's sort of the capstone here saying that we have an envelope around chapters 1 and 9 to say that this is a unit within the book. And so uh, wisdom begins and ends the book in that way. Uh, She gives wisdom to kings who rule by her. And then the parallel to that is the Lord himself creates by her or forms the world through her. All right. Any other thoughts? Let me say a few things here in the notes. If you have your notes or access to it, page 121, I just want to mention a few things uh, with regard to uh, this passage. One is the structure of it. Uh, this is, the, as I said, the longest first-person speech here, and it moves really through five sections Verses 12 through 21 are an autobiography of wisdom where she talks about her life. And then from 22 to 31, uh, it's what many call a narration of great deeds. When a a king or a dignitary would uh, inscribe something on a plaque. So if, if a king came into a country and conquered the country, he would usually set up some sort of a monument. And he would inscribe on that monument what he had accomplished. The Assyrians were famous for this. Uh, they, they would inscribe pictures of their enemies and they would describe an account of their heroic feats and what they did. And so this is sort of what wisdom is claiming as her great achievements. And if you look at 22 to 31, her great achievement is what? That she was there at creation. She's intricately connected to creation. Uh, And so I have a lot here about that. Um, If you look at page 122, um, 
the Lady Wisdom's narration of great deeds. As I note here, this is the most exquisite account of creation theology in the prologue and possibly in the entire Bible. It's also the most disputed. Uh, Yahweh and a youthful Lady Wisdom revel in the created cosmos. I want to just point out a couple things about this. Uh, Notice verses 30 and 31. Wisdom there says, uh, this is from the Holman Christian Standard, I was a skilled craftsman beside him. I was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of men. Notice how she repeats this idea of delight or joy. On page 123, I have my own translation here uh, that I would render it. I was his daily delight playing before him joyfully all the while, joyfully playing in 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 his inhabitable world. The question is, why is is wisdom presented here as as delighting or playing in creation? Is there some significance to the fact that she takes delight in the created order? And why is she described this way? She's kind of described as, uh, you can imagine, a little kid on the playground who's running around, jumping up and down, enjoying the created order as a child would delight in play. So what's what's going on with that? Why is wisdom playing in creation, and what does that suggest or mean? Everything in creation at that time was very good. It was all perfect, and so I would think you'd be happy when everything is real good. There's no evil, there's no sin. Right, okay. So at, at the beginning it was all pristine, so in that sense, it was enjoyable. Any other thoughts? Maybe the joy of mankind putting her uh, into practice or use. What do you mean by that? Like uh, Adam, Adam uh, displaying God's wisdom or putting wisdom into, into uh, action. Maybe that's the joy that Adam, so Adam, Adam received from acting wisely. Okay. Right, so you think about the things that Adam may have done at the beginning of the cosmos. We know he names the animals. Uh, he seems to, uh, he, he goes bananas when he's presented with Eve and he sees her and he has this, you know, he, the first poem in the Bible is Adam going crazy over seeing Eve. Uh, and so, yeah, he seems to be delighting in that. So he's using wisdom. Any other thoughts? I mean, wisdom knows the attributes of God and God has So God takes joy in it, and wisdom does. Uh, so there's a parallel there. Yep. Did you have a thought? Well, I just think about Hollywood and, and movies and all that, and it just seems like Hollywood does its best. They they delight in picturing God and Christians as stodgy and dull yeah. and boring and and against any kind of fun and. And uh, I, you know, this 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 idea of of like a little girl on a playground, just and and other parts of the Bible just totally blow that blows that out of the water, mm-hmm. and and that God delights in delight, and God delights in His creation, and and even in a fallen world, we still have we still have just a phenomenal phenomenally beautiful world that we live in mm-hmm. and you know it's just it's just great yeah and and I mean and a person would have to be just morose or dark yeah. himself to so. just to say it's all bad right right like Richard Dawkins to me is like that what a depressing person to be if, if there's no purpose you know what's the point? But so I'll just piggyback on what you're saying then. So in other words, God is not a cosmic killjoy. God is not a 
grouchy, grumpy old man up in the sky who, uh, you know, curmudgeonly uh, just doesn't want to interact. So the point being, in my mind, this is a very important insight into wisdom, that wisdom is not life-denying, it's life-affirming. And particularly, this is how I read Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes has seven commendations of joy that build momentum and climax toward the end of the book. And basically the premise there is, uh, even though we live in a fallen world, God has given us good gifts to enjoy, and we're to enjoy them judiciously, understanding that there will be judgment, but at the same time understanding that ultimately life is a joyful journey. It's a pursuit of good things. And so I think, unfortunately, for many centuries in the church, wisdom was read sort of in a subversive way as denying the world, tending toward asceticism where we uh, are, are supposed to uh, deny ourselves certain good things in the pursuit of spiritual disciplines. And, of course, that's not to say there's not a place for that, right? Didn't Jesus say that when I leave, there will be fasting and prayer? But at its kernel, I think wisdom is uh, a pursuit of joy because God is good and gives good gifts. One of the fundamental lies of Satan in the garden, really two lies, that God is not true and God is not good. And those are the same two lies that everyone is tempted to believe and the world does believe, that God is not true, God is not good. But wisdom affirms both of those things, that God is good and God is true. It, he, wisdom begins by saying, I'm truthful. Everything I'm saying is true and trustworthy. And then she ends by saying, creation itself is good. You know, take a, take a spin on the uh, merry-go-round here. Enjoy the cosmos. You know, go hiking and enjoy yourself. I remember standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon and thinking, this is not real. Like, this is so amazing. Uh, so there is a lot that we can delight in in the world, and uh, it includes the gifts of, of food and human love, enjoying the cosmos, enjoying the good things God has given us. So to me, this is a really important concept that uh, if, if wisdom makes us grouchier, which, you know, in a sense, Ecclesiastes does say that when you increase wisdom, you increase sorrow. But that's because you understand that life is not as it should be, but it's heading toward what it should be. And so ultimately, it's about joy. So thoughts about that? Yeah. Uh, verse uh, 31 in Genesis 1, God saw that all he had made was very good. It's like he was delighted with what was created. Right. Yes. And and so this goes hand in glove with wisdom's own perspective. Yeah. Can I share a teeny little tidbit mm -hmm. of my day. Sure. <laughs> um, I'm a literacy teacher, and today I had a little group of kids, um, three little girls and one little boy, and they were reading a book called All About Spiders. And the vast array of amazing variation within just spiders. Mm -hmm. it, it's just, they were, they were, giggling and looking and exploring and wanting to see more and wanting to learn more about this crazy looking creature over here and this really scary one over here and the the sound that they were making made a teacher poke her head and what's going on in here yeah. you know and they were just that heightened emotion that's that's horror and excitement and, yeah. and delight all at once and the squealing and everything. And I just, I, that's how I feel about God's creation. Yeah. That it's joyful and it's exciting and sometimes horrifying and right. but and all at once. But at the same time, because I know the Lord and I know the source of that creation, there's even greater delight. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I think so many Christians over the last century have been attracted to C.S. Lewis and some writers like that because he really does a good job of bringing out that there is beauty and desire and goodness uh, that God has innately put into us, wired, hardwired in us. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.10, he set eternity in our hearts, so we, we know that we transcend just a, a finite fallen existence, and so there's this desire that ultimately it leads us to God, right? This is what Augustine said as well, that 
Um, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Uh, and so I love that too because I see that resonating so much with what Proverbs talks about in joy, uh, gladness, enjoying what God gives us. So we're, we're not, you know, Christians are viewed as people who say no, right? We say no to this, we say no to this. Uh, really, that's a false narrative because we're people who affirm we affirm life, we affirm joy, we affirm God's goodness. And so that's it's very satisfying to understand uh, our place in the world and why God has placed us here. Um, in verse 30, uh, in the NIV, it's then I was constantly at his side. But there's like an annotation at the bottom that says, or was a little child. Yeah. I was wondering if you think that would be make more sense in that context. Um, yeah, how did I just translate it? Let's see. This is verse 30. I was right beside him growing up. I was his daily delight. Uh, this is a term here uh, that is kind of a, a difficult one. You can take it as a confidant, child, constantly with him, or a craftsman. Um, I don't know if I have any more. I might have a discussion about this. But I think... The idea of that childlike playfulness is there. And, uh, yeah, on page 120, I have a little bit of a discussion on this. Um, there are three basic ways to translate that word amon as an artisan craftsman, uh, constantly or faithfully with him, or as a child. Uh, and I, I think I chose number two after looking at all the options. But certainly the playfulness is there. Uh, and so that idea of a childlike, uh, you, you think of Christmas morning and what kids are like, that seems to be the euphoria that wisdom's experiencing here when she's let loose in creation. It's like, it's always fun, you know, if I'm... stop and go and have fun and play games too still. Yeah, exactly. I, I always enjoy being near a school when recess lets out and just to see the kids running headlong to the playground, it's fun. And that's what I think wisdom is pictured here is that she's let loose in creation and she delights in it. All right, any other thoughts on, on these aspects? All right, so if not, there's more I say here in the notes, but uh, let's go to page 126. I wanted to try to get uh, through as much of 9 as I could as well in chapter 10. All right, so 9-1 uh, is the beginning here of the conclusion of uh, the prologue, well, 9-1 to 18. So chapter 9 is the final appeal of Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. Uh, so let me read through this part, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it. All right, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Again, that temple imagery here. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says... Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Uh, if you pay real at close attention to 9 and 10 here, you'll notice how closely they resemble uh, verses from the preamble at the beginning of the book. Verse 11, For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat which could also be translated on a throne, at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. She is the curator of the original haunted house. So the dead live there. All right, so thoughts about wisdom and folly here. So wisdom uh, begins with her appeal 
uh, verses 1 to 12. She's had all, all this publicity in verse uh, chapter 8 to describe her program and who she is. So obviously uh, the, the contrast is, is striking between wisdom, who gets a lot of press and publicity, and folly. Folly only gets uh, six verses at the end uh, and a very simple appeal. Uh, so the contrast is sharp. Uh, but any observations or thoughts briefly about anything that you see here in these two comparisons? They still have receded the highest point of the city. Folly? Yeah. Yes. So she has her own rival temple. Uh, and uh, I think I note somewhere here that uh, this shows the parasitic nature of evil. Uh, that Satan never really creates anything original. He just... Uh, does a cheap plagiarism off the good things God makes and uh, perverts it to make it attractive and then sucks people in. So that even here, folly seems to be uh, a cheap knockoff of the truth in her own way. All right, any other observations or thoughts about these two? Why does wisdom prepare a feast? What does this suggest? Enjoyment. Okay, enjoyment. Right, so uh, you're sustained and nourished through wisdom. Uh, I also think that this is a celebratory meal to commemorate the construction of her house or her temple. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit about this. Uh, She has another speech here where she echoes a lot of what's been said at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, particularly verse 10. So it's sort of a capstone bringing it full circle. Any observations about folly? The people that are with folly are dead. And with wisdom, if you get wisdom, then many years will be added to your life. But with folly, they're having stolen food, stolen water, and they wind up with the, the dead instead of long life. Right, exactly. So that she she offers pleasure that ends in death, although she never mentions death. And wisdom offers uh, life that ultimately leads to pleasure as well in, in a holistic sense. Yep. Well, I also think that also how wisdom prepares the food herself shows that you have to work towards something. Yeah. And folly just talked about it being stolen better something simple, simply given but might not be the best right. course. Yeah, she seems to be the picture here of sloth. Uh, she doesn't really want to get off her seat uh, to do anything. She's just in other words, wisdom does has this elaborate preparation and she calls out her dignitaries to, to summon people to the meal and folly can't even get up out of her seat. Uh, so there is a, a stark contrast there uh, that's different. But other thoughts, ma'am? Yeah. But her, her, even though her preparation is, the preparation of both wisdom and folly is starkly different in other ways and similar, but um, I, I just think it's interesting that, that the woman of folly is so counterfeit but yet she appeals in the same way. Right, right. She appeals to the baser instincts and to to illicit pleasure uh, with a perversion of the truth, and yet at the same time, obviously, it's attractive because we know most people in the world pursue folly headlong. Uh, it makes me think of like a, a counterfeit dollar. Right. It looks... Know, to the to the somebody who doesn't know any better, it looks exactly like a real like the letter. real thing. Yeah, but it's not right. Which you know, a book like the Screw Tape Letters is good right. about that. Just showing how, uh, rather than taking everything away, we'll flood them with counterfeits so that they're easily misled uh, by other things. Do you have a thought too? I, not so much contrast between between the two ladies, but in thinking about. The, not the problem, but but the dispensational difference between 
Ohio, the Old Testament, and what we have here, and more an em- emphasis on the blessings of being in the land. But, you know, you think of Second uh, Corinthians and the obedient Christian, and you think about the uh, the five-star resorts that God has prepared for the obedient in this dispensation, you know, rods, stonings, and being in the deep, and, you know, always in danger, and a lot of suffering, and Hebrews having your stuff taken away from you, and, and <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to present a bad picture of Christianity, but, but, <clears throat> the, the, you know, the book of Acts, those who were obediently following the Lord just got, just got really trounced on, and, uh, especially the Apostle Paul, and, and, you know, uh, is it, is it, uh, just, is it, is it, uh, is it a dispensational difference, or, you know, is, how did, how did, I wonder how the first century Christians looked at the book of Proverbs, you know, and were thinking riches? Uh, really? Yeah. Well, from the Jewish perspective, you know, this is tied back into the law, and the law stipulates if you obey, there will be blessings, and these are physical blessings. Uh, if you don't obey, there will be curses that ensue. And uh, so in, from their perspective, that's what th- these promises are tied into, Torah and the yeah. promises of the law. What's interesting, when you get to the New Testament, Paul is collecting an offering for whom? For the poor in Jerusalem, meaning there were Jewish people who were poor. So there were Jewish people who weren't realizing the full blessing of Torah. They didn't have their own kingdom or government. Uh, in a certain sense, when Ezra prays, when they return from exile, he says, we're still slaves. He makes this comment. So they never had really experienced the full blessing of Torah promises uh, coming into the New Testament. So, um, you know, this is probably a topic that if I pursued, it would take the rest of the time. But th- there is a distinction. And in the church age, we have every spiritual blessing. Uh, but m- these physical blessings that the Israelites were promised uh, are not unilaterally given to us. Otherwise, we would be preaching a, go- a prosperity gospel. Right. Uh, but so we understand we have spiritual blessings, and ultimately, ultimately these will come full circle uh, to material blessings as well. Because uh, we make the mistake, I think, of divorcing the spiritual from the material. That's a Platonic uh, dualism that isn't really scriptural. Uh, so spiritual and physical go hand in hand, but we don't yet realize the full extent of those physical material blessings until Jesus returns in the millennial kingdom. Uh, but we can experience some of that if we live our lives wisely rather than cross-grain against the wisdom of God. All right, so let me just make a few uh, observations here. Uh, verse 1, wisdom builds her house. I want to suggest this is a temple uh, and that she has seven pillars. Uh, this word for pillar is used over 50 times in the Old Testament in Exodus and 1 Kings in the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, so this suggests that house and pillars together uh, should be understood as a palace or temple. The number seven often implies completion, perfection, or sacredness. Uh, so it seems that this is uh, what she has built. And to piggyback on that, the second point of verse 2 The phrase, she has prepared her meat, Uh, usually at the dedication of a temple, there would be sacrifices and a feast. And so this seems to be what's going on. I have a quote here from the Baal cycle. This is from uh, some of the ancient Near East writings about Baal. And the same thing, at the end of the construction of Baal's temple, they have a feast. And so Lady Wisdom has slaughtered her sacrifice. It's a lavish meal to consecrate her Abode and her fare is sumptuous and satisfying to those who feast on it. Uh, but the other hand is uh, Lady Folly, as we'll see in a moment, and she also has a feast, but it's stolen goods rather than uh, something that is satisfying. Okay, a few other things to point out. If, uh, beginning in verse 13, uh, Folly is a... A boisterous uh, woman, an unruly woman. I think a better way to translate this is woman folly is raucous. She is simple and does not know why. I'm on page 127. So 
In other words, it's Lady Wisdom, verse 1. It's Lady Folly, verse 13. And Lady Folly is the opposite of wisdom. Rather, you know, wisdom is loud in a certain sense because she's calling out and sending out her dignitaries. But Lady Folly is loud in a different sense. She's raucous or noisy, sort of the idea of uh, party noise. Uh, so she's boisterous in this sense. And this same word is used of the wayward woman in Proverbs 7. If you remember that example story in Proverbs 7, that lady is also boisterous. She doesn't stay at home. She's out and about. And so Lady Folly has that uh, characteristic as well. Notice also that it says in verse 13 that she is simple. Uh, This is really interesting. She's gullible or simple and knows nothing. Uh, I, I... sort of chuckle, I think this is a great uh, illustration of how most of the world operates. In other words, Lady Folly is really no more insightful and wiser than the people she's trying to attract, right? She herself is simple and knows nothing, and yet she's appealing to other simpletons to come. And isn't this uh, how much of our culture uh, acts, right? If, If you're on Twitter or a few other things, you know that it seems like simple people are dictating you know, deep thoughts to other simple people. That's really what's going on, and it's just this this circle. And we see that here, that she really is no more qualified to be leading the simple than the simple themselves, but yet they're attracted to her message. But really, she has nothing to offer them. She seems appealing and attractive, but really they'll benefit nothing by joining her. She's just as simple as they are. All right, so uh, she makes her appeal. Uh, Verse 18, of course, the dead are there. Uh, We've already talked a little bit about that. Uh, That ultimately leads to death. All right, on page uh, 129, just a few other comments. I'm just going to quickly talk on a couple things here. Uh, I have something in here about uh, formal meals as Lady Wisdom uh, prepares this formal meals. Uh, There's a lot of debate about these seven pillars in verse 1 as to what these connote. Uh, It's probably connected to the the well-constructed and ordered creation. That creation itself is is the temple, I think. And so uh, people are to see the cosmos and be attracted to true wisdom. On page 130... Uh, I have an, a lengthy quote here that talks about how uh, construction of a building is compared in Proverbs to the construction of the earth, and so they do go hand in hand. Um, uh, let me just conclude this section by page 130 at the bottom there, uh, noting how wisdom folly, uh, Lady Folly ends this prologue. In contrast to the well-ordered and positive features of Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly is dissolute and disorderly. She echoes themes and concepts from the example story. She's boisterous and impudent. Uh, The structure and decor of her house is ill-defined. She sits in the doorway, suggesting sloth. Uh, She sits on a throne, verse 14. Her food must be eaten in secret. Her water, not wine, is stolen. And her pathway careens down toward hell. Uh, Murphy says she gives the impression of a shrewish person, raucously making her pitch, in contrast to the dignified messengers commissioned by wisdom in verse 3. All right, so this is a conclusion to the prologue with sort of a, a dueling contrast between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. They both have similar appeals, but one is a perversion of the truth that would lead us to disordered loves and disordered reality that's lady folly on the other hand is lady wisdom which leads us to that which is life affirming and good uh, that which is consistent with god's design and purpose for the created world all right uh page 131 uh i'll conclude here by just mentioning the next section so uh the prologue ends chapter 10 verse 1 begins what I would call fundamental wisdom or the next section. And this introduces a section that goes through chapter 15. So 10 to 15 are largely uh, contrasting Proverbs 
that show the difference between good and evil. So, in other words, the prologue ends with Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly being contrast, and the next five chapters give us what we call antithetical proverbs, meaning uh, this is good, this is bad. It's a contrast in each of these proverbs uh, between what is good and what is not good uh, as it goes on. Uh, the heading in 10.1a, you'll know it says here the Proverbs of Solomon... And this seems to introduce another section. Uh, one of the interesting things about this is this section has 375 Proverbs, which is the same as the numerical value of the name Solomon. Uh, so there seems to be intentionality to how this is crafted. And uh, there's a lot of features here that I go into that show that this is a sub-unit. And so I have a, a few comments on uh, several of these Proverbs as you work through this, uh, beginning in 10.1 through 5. Uh, unfortunately, don't really have time to get into it. So uh, our time is up. Are there any final questions or thoughts, comments? Try to cover a lot of material tonight. We're on break, and then you're going to be back after break next year. How's that work? I don't know. I can't answer that. I, I don't know what the schedule is like, so... Um, and I don't know what the slate of classes is or anything like that. So, all right. Well, thanks for your uh, participation this semester and the class, and Thank you. enjoyed it. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you hopefully in the future.